Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. We've got some great guests here um, today on the show. Our second guest, Megan Steubendeck, CEO of Arbor Bridge, which is one of our test prep partners and former head of instruction there. So she's not just the big wig. She's been down in the trenches. Uh, we'll be telling us about the changes to the SAT. And I'm really as eager to learn as all of you. Um, our third guest is uh, one of my colleagues, Tara Piantanita Kelly. She's a college finance expert here at College Coach, and she'll be answering some very important questions about changes to how financial aid eligibility is determined and how to decipher your financial aid award. But first, for those of you, by the way, who are who are watching this on video, you can already see Chris Lucier, um, former vice president of University of Vermont and University of Delaware and current director of partner relationships at Orthot. Am I saying that correctly? Orthot, Sally. Orthot. Okay, great. About the impact of test optional policies for students applying to public universities. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Sally. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I really am glad that you're here. Um, For those of you listening, I was just telling Chris before we started that I'm really grateful he's on because all of us are kind of at sea here, including the colleges, you know, this landscape that for someone like me who's been doing this since honestly 1992 um, in one way or another, you know, I, I knew the role of test scores. I understood how they would be used. I understood test optional when it was used, but then everything changes on a dime for good reason. Uh, but suddenly things become so much harder to predict. So Chris, you can enlighten us as, as much as possible. Um, what are some of the changes that you've noticed? I mean, for one thing, just the increase, right? Absolutely. You know, since pre-COVID, the number of test optional institutions has doubled and it's actually probably now closing, getting close to 2,000. And if we say there's about 4,000, 4,000 plus institutions in the United States, it's gone from a little less than a quarter now to about half of those institutions are offering some type of test optional. And of course, all of us who've been in the uh, the business for a long time see how that can be, you know, there's advantages to that, right? I mean, uh, we've understood the different biases that the standardized tests may have against certain groups of students. Uh, we've all known students, including I had a son who just wasn't a good test taker. and. Uh, you know, I, I was in a position that I could take him to test prep, et cetera, and those things all helped him, but still was never going to have a, a test score that probably really represented what, what he could do to colleges. Mm-hmm. But for colleges, even whether they were utilizing very holistic means of admissions, et cetera, the test score, along with a GPA and curriculum, were always providing a fairly significant amount of quantitative data that a school could understand that would say, here is this student's likelihood to perform well at my institution. And now that's not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know when I worked at Reed, which was my first mm-hmm. institution, and you know, this is the case for many institutions, there were certain groups that were underrepresented that we really wanted to admit if we could at all. Um, but there were certain test scores under which, and we, did, we didn't count test scores as much for them because we knew about the bias. Mm-hmm. That being said, based on our research below a certain level gave us real concerns about ability to graduate. And that had been based on research. You know, that wasn't based on, it was like below this certain level, it, it's not just bias. There seems to be a weakening of ability to get yourself to completion, you know, yeah. to graduation. Absolutely, Sally. There's no question about it. There, you know, institutions are trying to do two things during the admissions process, right? They're trying to build a community of of learners, of students that really are consistent with their their values, their tradition, their mission. They're really trying to do that, but they're also wanting to make sure that the student can come and be successful, right? You you admit students to hopefully ultimately graduate that student. That's why we have that process. And Mm -hmm. so you wanna make sure that they can do the work. And 
institutions have, as you said, based off of research, usually some type of regression equation, et cetera, that included GPAs or weighted GPAs, some factor that would maybe include curriculum, but then test scores also usually entered into that algorithm so that they knew where was the place that, that, that a student may not be able to be successful, even if they were from an underserved population, an underrepresented population, or a student who, who just might not be able to test well. But, you know, so those were very important parts of building that class. And, you know, I remember, and you, again, you've been in this business since 92, uh, it was helpful on the other side for both students and counselors. Because you had the scattergrams, you had the, the median 50%, you know, students at this institution usually score an SAT of between 1100 and 1260. Mm -hmm. You know, there's certainly 25% of the classes testing above that, 25% below, uh, but, and then a GPA. So you could sit down with a student and say, here's where you're likely to fall. And that factor, I think, you know, you and I were talking again right before the call when I woke up and I was looking at my Facebook uh, Saturday about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and a lot of the large public institutions that are now test optional, which many thought they would never ever go test optional, or test optional, and on the counselor uh, part of uh, Facebook was outcry saying, I don't understand the choices. How is this happening? I, you know, I don't know what's going on. And I thought to myself, exactly what we're talking about today is going test optional is good in a lot of ways, but it has actually increased the amount of uncertainty for institutions trying to figure out what students are going to be successful. But likewise, for you and, you know, hundreds of students and families, it's also like, well, if I don't submit a score, if I do submit a score, where am I? And, and I really felt for all those counselors who were just saying, you know, I did my best to advise a student. And now what do I tell them? Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Because GPA is really not a very useful marker. You know, like that, like a lot of people think GPA or GPA is everything. But I'm like, no, I mean, the difference between a student who took AP physics versus AP psychology, it's right. the same grade points, totally different level of rigor at colleges acknowledge that. So that kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, then you get into uh, whether there was great inflation or, you know, all, all uh, there's so many other factors. And, and then you're looking at students who may not have had an opportunity to engage a, a rigorous curriculum or as regular. So, again, how do you do? And those are things that institutions have been trying to go through with a holistic process. I was actually at the University of Michigan when the, the uh, court cases came down in 2003. Mm -hmm. And again, where a large public institution went to holistic admissions and us trying to explain that. And again, for many students and counselors trying to listen to us explain this new admissions process, it was like, you know, wow, you have made what was clear, very cloudy for us. Uh, and that's existed. And in some ways, have we, is it even more cloudy? But, you know, speaking from somebody who was on the side of it at the institution, who's not only just wanting to build a class, but also retain a class. Mm -hmm. The question to institutions, as you're saying, is you might not have test scores now. And GPA is questionable, right, in terms of its validity and, again, the various validity between, between high schools or students that are applying. So what factors do they look at within an admissions application that help them say, I have confidence that this student can come here and be successful in that institution? And that's, that's really a challenge, but there is advanced analytics. There are advanced analytics that can start helping institutions answer that question. Mm -hmm. So let's dig into that. I mean, what, yeah. you know, what kinds of things did institutions, I mean, for me at a small liberal arts and sciences college, mm -hmm. it wasn't hard for me to imagine how they did it. A lot of them had been, I mean, Bowdoin went test optional how long ago, 40 years ago? Yeah. I don't even yes. know, but it's, they've got plenty of data. They know what they're doing. Right. right. But, but these larger public institutions, the, the, the staff per student, I mean, it just has to be overwhelming. They can't do my guess. Um, you know, and I only worked at private institutions, but I just can't imagine that they've got the staff to do the kind of deep dive 
Um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but to do the kind of deep dive into each application that a small liberal arts or kind of some of these private institutions did. So, yeah. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Now, you're, you're spot on. And again, you know, in, in that, uh, that piece that on the Facebook, well, you know, some counselors at some of these publics came on and just said, you know, we're, we're, we're having to get through these applications. You know, what we were able to do, because actually uh, when I was at the University of Delaware, we went test optional in 2016 for Delaware students. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, understanding the bias of the test scores on mm-hmm. certain populations and, and wanting to make sure those populations saw an open door and really knew that they had an open door to our institution. So we added some additional short answer questions that tried to get at some non-cognitive factors like you know the grit determinants, mm-hmm. things like that. But you're exactly right. How much additional time do you have now to read two or three additional short answer question. And can you do that? And that was for 25,000 applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm in the state of Michigan. I think the University of Michigan got 60,000 applications this year. So how yeah. in the world could they add more written questions? What we've done uh, with the company that I work for now uh, with advanced analytics is we've helped them actually look at other factors that include sometimes distance from campus, um, which are like really soft figures, but can often help you understand what that student's likelihood of success is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're able to overlay some uh, census data on top of those. And I want to emphasize, because as you know, there's been a lot of talk about the dangers of advanced artificial intelligence in, in terms of admissions processes or, or retention processes. And absolutely, if, if you totally rely on just the data, and you're not intervening with human uh, judgment that determines the goals, the institution's mission, again, they can potentially skew you towards ways that are not what you want to do in terms of your role to, to serve a broader society. So, but there are those other factors. Sometimes, you know, class rank is, but as you know, what, less than 50% of school, high schools use class rank. So there are ways to dig in in each institution. That's the key is a little bit different in terms of what factors might be best useful for that institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, class rank is always an interesting one because I think that it's another flawed measure. And I kind of think this is a little bit, this may seem a little off topic, but I, I think it's worth it to kind of think about how test scores can be useful if moved, used correctly, but they were essentially... I think to a large degree being misused, right? Like, I think it's fair for an institution to say, like an MIT or something like that, to say, like, if you don't have a 1200, you're probably not going to be successful here. But to make a distinction between a 1500 and a 1550, it's meaningless, absolutely, completely meaningless. You're you're exactly right. And, And that's where, again, especially in the selective publics or privates that are test optional, that you hope that they're taking the time to really understand, as you did at Reed, to really understand again that student's context. That's so important in, in the admissions process is to understand the context of that student. And because there are many flawed factors, none of them are perfect. Uh, test scores, I always said test scores were useful, again, what you just talked about, within a context of understanding context. How are you gonna utilize it? Is it informing it or is it driving the process? Mm-hmm. If it's informing it, great. If it's driving, that test score is driving the process, then maybe we have a, pro- a problem. But if you're able to look at that and then able to look at other factors that you get through the admissions file and weigh those, uh, then you can probably make consistent, uh, make decisions. But we still get to this issue, especially now that so many institutions are test optional and so many more students are applying test optional of predictability because there's not a lot of good quantitative things to go out to students or counselors and say, if a student does this, if a student does that, then we're not guaranteeing admissions, but they're gonna be quote unquote competitive or they're gonna be highly competitive or they're not gonna be as competitive, but they're still, you know, there may be other factors. You know, all those things that go into what you've done for, you know, 30 years and, uh, but so, that's where I recommend students, you know, if a school is saying that they're test optional, say, you know, you know, 
I think students need to be empowered and put the schools on understand those those guidelines. So if I if I don't submit a, a test score, and how will you look at my file differently than a student who does submit it? Mm-hmm. What other factors of my application might you look at or weigh differently so that you at least have some understanding of what, if an institution has developed one of these other metrics that's helping them inform their admissions process, what is it? So that we're at least being transparent. And and I've always argued for trying to be as transparent as we can be to students, counselors, et cetera, so that we're not increasing anxiety and very anxious Mm-hmm. environment right yeah. yeah i think transparency really is i i do not know what's causing that echo but things will sound better now so um i think transparency is what it's all about it's not always easy to be transparent or to explain it in a way that people who aren't part of the process understand it but really transparency is what it's all about so we need to kind of um we need to wrap things up now. Do you have yeah. any last statement or last piece of advice for students or colleges or universities? Well, I think first for colleges and universities, uh, you need to start doing the hard work using advanced predictive analytics to really understand what other factors, if you don't have test scores, will help you create a class that you have confidence that is going to be successful. If you determine additional factors, then I call on you to be transparent with students, families, counselors, so that they understand what other factors are going into the process. If you're going to add additional uh, questions, okay, we'll say we're going to add additional and these are the type of things that we're looking for in those type of uh, questions. Um, And for students, again, I think be empowered. Uh, Ask, you know, don't to say, well, they're test optional because that's not going to help. You know, what does that really mean? Are there other factors? You know, do the best. And all universities, because I've done it before at college panels, at high schools, throughout the United States, we're always going to say there is no formula, right? There's no recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, they should be able to provide some level of clarity uh, that they now are missing. They're maybe missing without having uh, uh, a predictable test band that was based off of almost all our students submitting test scores. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. This was really helpful, really enlightening. And I'm sure that our audience is going to be going to appreciate it too. So, all thank right. You now you we're- and, and again, all of them for the work they do to help our students uh, uh, find great, great fits and have great starts to the next step of their life. Thanks, Sally. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, I'll be talking with Megan Steubendeck of Arbor Bridge. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Megan. So glad to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Sally. It's always great to chat with you. So uh, I introduced your role, but basically you're in charge of Arbor Bridge, which is a test prep company, correct? 
Yes, we do tutoring for all of the exams, for academics, for APs, IBs, and the big one, the SAT, which we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the SAT has changed its coming, which, you know, it's like further layer of complexity to the admission process, um, along with test optional. So yeah, relying on you, what kind of changes are coming? Uh, Let's start with that. Yeah, so the test is going to be changing in the coming years, and we could talk about that timeline in a second, but really there's going to be a major shift in the feel of the test when a student takes it on test day. And the biggest shift is it's moving from paper to computer, and that is sort of a sea change for the SAT and um, for college admissions, but we've been having computer-based tests for a long time, and others, GRE, GMATs, Mm -hmm. ICs, all of those have been computer-based for a little bit while, but sort of what it's going to feel like for a student is you're going to go to the test center. It's not going to be taken at home because there were questions whether or not, ooh, can I now take this at home online? Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You'll still go to a test center. You can bring your own computer uh, or you can use one that is provided by the test center or the college board at the test center. You'll pull up in your device. You're going to download a testing app onto your computer and you're going to take the entire test inside that testing app. And so what you'll see is the questions will show up, the passages on the screen, your bubble sheet is right there on the screen too. And you just submit your answers through there. Um, so that's kind of what the experience will be like. But I think the the biggest thing everybody is super excited about is it will be shorter. <laughs> We're going from three hours to two hours. So that's a big win for students. And the other thing my students are very excited about is you can now use your calculator on all the math again. <laughs> that was something that five years ago went away. They had some questions with calculator and some without, but they heard you loud and clear students out there and tutors who are dependent on calculators, which I will say I am one of them. <laughs> uh, and the calculator is back, back in play. Mm-hmm. Well, it just feels like so easy to make that dumb mistake without a calculator. Like, I mean, it's easy even with a calculator, but even easier without. So, uh, well, thank goodness for that. I will say that I took tests like that when I was in graduate school recently, where I brought my computer, uploaded a partic- downloaded a particular program, and it it was actually really nice to be taking it on my computer. Even if a student has a computer, I think that's a plus. It's like an extra level of comfort. Absolutely. It's the same thing we talk about when we talk to students about the calculator you take in even now to the test. Use the one you use every day in school that you're really comfortable with. And we're going to suggest to students that if you have a computer that you can take to the exam, you should opt for that over the computer that's provided at the test center for exactly the same reason. You're comfortable with it. You know how the mouse clicks, you know all the buttons, Mm -hmm. um, and it feels just much. It's one fewer thing to think about on test day. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So when are these changes happening? Like when is all this coming? Okay. So it's not happening tomorrow. So no one has to panic yet, which is good. (laughs) They've given us a little bit of a heads up. Um, Most of these changes are starting. The first set of changes will be a year from now in the spring. So next March, 2023, international students will move to the computer-based test. Mm -hmm. Then in fall, 2023, so a year and a half from now, the PSAT for all students, US, international will move to the digital interface. And then U.S. students, who I think are most of the people who are listening probably today, are spring 2024. So for U.S. students, it's two years away. So Mm -hmm. the one way to kind of like think about this is if you are a senior or junior right now, ignore this. This is Mm -hmm. not you. You do not need to think about this. You've got other things to think about and worry about. Mm -hmm. Just move on. For sophomores, if you live outside of the United States, yes, this will be something that will affect you and affect your SATs. But for the U.S. kids, also. Mm -hmm ignore this. This is not happening to you. It's really the freshman class of 2025, whether they're in the U.S. or abroad, you will have a PSAT on the computer and you will have an SAT on the computer. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So how is the content of the test going to change? I mean, I know it's going to be shorter, but what else is going to be different? So there's really one small change that some students will notice and some students might not is that on the math section, we talked about the calculator change, but they're also going to make the questions less wordy, which a lot of students actually really like is right now they don't like to go through the long word problem that sets up a problem. Mm -hmm. And now you can kind of get right to the meat and get right to the math. The biggest change, though, is going to be in the reading section. So currently, when they open the reading section, you get a long passage, almost a whole page worth of text, and then you get 10 questions about that passage. And the SAT says, you know what, we're going to stop doing that. What we're going to do instead is you're going to get snippet, small, short passages with one question each, and you're going to get more time per question. So the Mm. pace will be a little bit more comfortable, um, and you're going to get those shorter passages. Now, I, I will say as a test prep expert, just a tip out there is most people hear that and be like, yes this sounds amazing. I'm going to be so good at this. And in some ways it is good because 
if you hit one hard passage now, it hits you, hurts you for 10 questions. Mm -hmm. But what's nice about this is you get one hard passage. It only hurts you once. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the flip side with a shorter passage, it's uh, fewer textual clues to point you to the right answer. So you got to be a little bit better at at picking up the point of the passage and what's going on a little bit more quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be less tiring, but yeah, you're, you might think you're doing really well when you're not. Um, it's funny. I'm listening to all this and I'm like, I might not have done as well in this version because I was really good at like those long textual passages. I swear that's why I did well on the test because I did not study like other people. I didn't, but I'm just a really good close reader and always have been. So that, that was just my skill set, you know? Um, but all right. So that's pretty interesting. And I think most students, at least the test itself will be a little less painful for them. So I think that's really good. Now, there's also been talk about the exam being adaptive. And so let's dig into what that means. I mean, I can see how this could be so much better for students who have particular learning challenges. Maybe they've got ADD or whatever it might be that there are ways to adapt it. Is that true or am I imagining that? No, you're absolutely right. For students with accommodations, this is really helpful. So ADHD, like you said, um, it can really help to have these smaller, shorter passages to have a test that requires less endurance. And actually, that's helpful for Anyone, even those of us who like taking these tests, Mm -hmm. a shorter test is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It also, for students with accommodations who might have extra time, who have double time, you know, a three-hour test quickly becomes a six-hour test. And that Mm. is a marathon to ask a student to do. Even I would really struggle Mm. with that. So there are definitely the upsides. But I think one thing to kind of cover is talk about what does this actually mean to be adaptive? And the adaptive nature is how they are making it shorter. So what this does is that basically the computer is analyzing how a student's performing as they're moving through the material. And so what the computer can do is can be actively zeroing in on their right score. And mm-hmm. what that means is that the test doesn't take as long. Um, and so what we think so far, based on what the college board has said about this SAT, is how they plan to make it adaptive. And there's lots of ways to make an adaptive test, but the primary way they're going to do it is that each section, so if you get a math section, say will be divided into two modules. The first module will be a basic set of questions that everybody gets, um, or that is sort of medium level difficulty. And it's going to zero in on, do you need harder level difficulty, medium level or lower level difficulty based on how you perform on that first module. And -hmm. then your second module will kind of bump you to your level to further zero in on that score. Now, one thing that I would say about this is that this changes a lot how the test will feel. Um, one way is that you do have to train yourself to really be strong right out of the gate. You can't mm-hmm. sort of wait to find your groove. You really have to move into that module and put your best foot forward. The other thing is you'll have to um, manage, and this is something where students with learning dis- differences or um, students with diagnosed test anxiety might struggle a little bit because it does put a lot more pressure on those first few questions. And so you'll have to learn to manage that anxiety as you're moving through. Um, But I will say that because adaptive testing has been around for a long time, many of us in the testing industry, I know we, the experts at Arbor Bridge, have prepared students for this before. We know how to do this and how to um, manage all of those uh, new factors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that is something. I mean, I will say that if you're somebody who likes to kind of go back to questions and things like that, it sounds like you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, there will be, from what we can see that students will be able to flag in the the sort of testing interface questions they want to go back to and can go back and forth to questions, but it doesn't appear usually in an adaptive module like this. You can't go back from one module to another. You will Mm -hmm. usually be able to go within the module back and forth, Um, but we don't know for sure yet. We're still waiting for the SAT to give us more more instructions and and information about the adaptive Mm -hmm. interface. Mm -hmm. I guess the good news is, as I always tell students, everybody's in the same boat. This isn't just happening to you. This is happening to everybody. So so those challenges are probably going to be fairly universal unless you're extremely lucky. Um, So what about like, what are colleges saying about it? Um, I'm just kind of curious what you've heard in all honesty, I haven't heard much. And I feel like my, I mean, my sort of best guess is that the colleges will sort of either take what the college board gives them, or they'll go full UC and be like, go away. You know, I could see that evolving over time. I mean, if they decide they don't like this test, you know, the college board risks, um, losing more clients, so to speak. But I can see this also solving problems of test security and stuff like that, that the colleges also care about pretty deeply. So curious about your thoughts. 
Yeah, you've hit on all the big ones. The test security is a big one. And that has been a problem that's plagued the College Board for a number of years. We've seen um, large-scale cancellations when a test gets leaked, a paper test. And Mm -hmm. what's great about a digital test is they find out there's been a leak 24 hours before the exam. They can just upload a new exam for everyone at the computer center. Mm -hmm. Also, the adaptive nature makes it so that it's harder to know if they're going to recycle tests, different kids in the same room will have different tests uh, versions and different questions. And so it does really begin to address security in all of its forms. And I think that's one of the major reasons why colleges will be actually in, in favor of this change. Now, in terms of whether or not they accept the scores also depends on validity. Do they find that these scores are actually valid indicators of how a student will do in college? Mm -hmm. Um, Are they comparable to uh, old school scores? How does that exactly work? And we're still waiting for information on that. And the College Board expects to publish some validity studies in November of 2023. So kind of a a ways away here we've got um, to wait for those validity studies. Um, But those validity studies should tell us more and should tell the colleges more as well. And then the last thing I would say here is that In the pilot testing, there was a pilot test of this back in November. So Mm -hmm. a couple months ago, College Board had a bunch of students sit for this, um, kind of looked at how they performed, how they felt about it. And they actually sent, um, they had educators at the College Board and sort of affiliates with the College Board sit in, take a look at the step of the materials. And there were admissions officers from MIT, Yale, and USC on that board. And they indicated they were impressed with what they saw. And Mm. so there is an indicator that, maybe there's going to be a little bit more um, acceptance of this than there was Mm. of that ACT announcement that came a number of years ago that they were going to change. And then everyone kind of freaked out about it. Um, College Mm -hmm. board tends to uh, do a better job of courting the colleges I found in Mm -hmm. the past when it makes changes like this, giving them time to get on board, giving them lots of data and and asking them questions ahead of time too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The college board seems very PR savvy and the ACT. I always picture all these statisticians in a room going, this is just how it's going to be. Like, it's just a very different feel. You know, it doesn't mean the test is better or worse, but just the PR version of it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I would definitely say the college board is, uh, is very slick when it comes to its, uh, its image and its PR. They, they do quite a lot and have for a number of years to, to to keep that, keep that shiny and bright. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Exactly. All right. So last question, any advice for students or parents on how to navigate this period of change, especially as you know, we're waiting for the details. Yeah. And I think that's important. That point about we're waiting for the details. So the first thing I would say is don't panic. There is no need, no need to worry at this point. We are still a few years off from really understanding all of what's going to happen. Also, we're a few years off from understanding from the actual implementation of this. And we're going to see over the next six months, a lot of information coming out via webinars, papers, um, practice exams from the college board. They generally do a very good job of getting that kind of material Mm -hmm. out to students, especially compared to the ACT. So really what I would just say is that if you are in the United States and you are a sophomore or older, just move on with your life. This will not affect you. So don't worry (laughs) about it. And if you're a freshman, just hold tight for right now, wait the next six to 12 months for more details to come out and then start to make your plans. There's no reason. I mean, all of us on the admissions and the testing side are deep in this right now. Mm -hmm. We're going to do that work for you. And we'll be here to help you when the time comes, but there's no reason to really worry about this at this point yet. Mm -hmm. All right. And I did think of one more question. I'm curious of your opinion on is any of this driven by all the additional test optional schools or was this did the college board kind of have, I mean, I imagine the college board had this in the pipeline anyway, because security issues have been going on for a long time and it's been well publicized at the same time. They're sort of, they are losing market share, so to speak, right? Like, yes. or, or losing customers. I mean, I think they're both losing uh, customers. So what are your thoughts about that? I think you've hit both the two important parts. One is the security issue. We knew the SAT had come out and said, more than five years ago that they hoped within a five-year period to have a digital SAT up and running. So Mm -hmm. that was before most of the big names we know of went test optional, University of Chicago, um, or the big push that we saw during COVID and during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. where places went test optional for um, the the time being. Um, So it was already in the works. They were sort of churning along. But what I also think is happening is you're exactly right. Test optional is having an impact here. And I think you're right in that the market is smaller. There's a Mm -hmm. smaller 
group of students who are going to want to test or need to test as, as time moves forward. And the ACT and SAT are in a cutthroat battle to, fit, mm-hmm. to grab what is left. And I really think that this change is focused on students and student comfort in the exam. Mm-hmm. So they're doing all of these things that still make it a valid test. That still will be a test that colleges will accept um, in a test optional world, but saying, hey guys, we are the more comfortable test. We're mm-hmm. shorter, we're digital. You get your test scores really quickly. You get your calculator all across the board. Passages are short. This is a really comfortable, easy test you can really just slide into. Mm-hmm. And they're really hoping that as the market shrinks, they're going to get a higher percentage of it and still maintain their, their dominance. Mm-hmm. With okay. Very interesting. Um yeah, these may be nonprofits, but they are a business at the same time. So <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> without a doubt. All right, Megan. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Sally. And thanks for thanks for listening, everybody. Um, all right. So we will be back uh, in just a few minutes. And then we're going to be welcoming Tara to talk financial aid when we return. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Tara. Thanks, Sally. Good to be here. And I apologize. I just can't say your name like more than once. It's <laughs> your last name, I should say. I'm yeah. always sure I'm saying it uh, wrong. So that's um, okay. <laughs> all right. We'll get straight to financial aid awareness month because that's what February is. And this segment is about how financial aid eligibility is determined, which I'm sure a lot of people would be really happy to know. It's a pretty complicated subject. So What should applicants and their parents be aware of? Um, A a few things. Um, Number one, they should absolutely, for each school that the student is applying to, know what the school requires to apply for financial aid. Um, Mm -hmm. Every school requires the FAFSA. Some schools also require the CSS profile. Some also require the non-custodial profile. Some have their own institutional financial aid applications. So be very sure what applications are required for each school. And the deadline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say the deadline. I talked to a lot of people who think, oh, well, first my kid gets in and then I apply, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. no. That's a good way to not get any aid. Right. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the deadlines, at least for the schools I worked at, were kind of pretty much like when the admission application was due. It was a pretty, it might have been a day, few days after or something, but often it was the same day or very similar. Right. A good rule of thumb is when you submit your admissions application, submit your financial aid application. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just plan on doing it. Yeah. Yep. I was even talking to a friend of mine who has a PhD and I was helping her son. And I said, have you started looking to my friend at the financial aid applications? And she's like, no. And I'm like, well, you have to do that now. That's your job. I'm working with Holland on his essays. You need to get started on looking up what kind of aid applications are required. She was like, yes, ma'am. This is a woman (laughs) with a PhD, you know? So obviously this is complex and hard. we, We all have our areas of expertise and, you know, we have this little niche knowledge and and not that not everybody has few people have so yeah um we're good people to listen to when it comes to this yes yes exactly so all right so how is financially determined 
Um, well, there's a, a process called need analysis. And when I started in financial aid 30 years ago, I had a bumper sticker that said financial aid administrators need analysis. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially what that is, it's just a, a calculation where, that financial aid administrators do at each school that says, well, we're going to take our total cost of attendance. And from that, we're going to deduct the student's expected family contribution. And that name's changing in a couple of years. We'll go over that. And the difference between the two is the student's demonstrated financial need need. Mm-hmm. And schools will try to the, you know, cover that need um, with some need-based financial aid, but most schools can't cover that, all of that, just because they don't have the, the resources to do that. There's a handful of schools that do say that's part of their packaging policy. We cover 100% of demonstrated mm-hmm. financial need, but it's, it's uncommon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the wealthier institutions. I mean, I loved it when I worked at University of Chicago. We covered everybody's need, except for, I think, some international students. Everybody else, you came off the wait list, we still covered your need. It was so wonderful not like having your heart break for students who you knew you weren't going to be able to cover their financial aid. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So what about... Um, yeah, I mean, you've mentioned school resources. So how does that impact the different kind of packages that students might get? Well, um, when I started packaging like by hand, it was like a, a calculation for, for each school. It's like, well, what is their need? How much of that can we cover with our institutional gift aid? Um, how much can we cover with other need-based financial aid, including federal work study or federal subsidized loan? Um, and then, you know, what's left over? Can I also offer some non-need-based um, aid, you know, like an unsubsidized loan? So each school um, tends to do that. Uh, they have their own particular packaging policy. Um, none of it's done by hand anymore. It's all, you know, written into the into code in the in the in their computer programs. But essentially, that's what still happens. What does the students need? Um, how much of it can we cover with our own institutional need-based aid? Um, how much, do, you know, does the student qualify for any federal need-based aid? Um, and then they just kind of put the whole thing together and send it out to the students saying, hey, if you come here this coming year, this is what you can mm-hmm. expect. Right. And it might even be like state grants. If you're in California, there's the Cal grant. Um, I mean, I think what's good for people to know is that often schools are basically, they call it gapping. So they might say you need 20,000, but you're going to get 15. Right. When I talk to a family and they say, well, our EFC is $20,000, that means we're going to pay $20,000 wherever we go. No, that is not the case, which is Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that they're changing the name of the expected family contribution in two years. They're going to call it just the student aid index because that's more accurate. It's it's, this is not what the family is expected to pay. This is just one of the components of the the calculation that determines the students need. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. Um. So what about, I mean, you mentioned changes to the EFC formula, like how is that going to change, you know, kind of tell us about what's coming up? Oh, big, big changes. So um, like I've said, uh, I've been doing college financial aid for the last 30 years. And one of the big components in the need analysis or the federal methodology that the it's the big equation that the, the FAFSA puts all of your information into and spits out the magical number called the expected family contribution. Um, the, it would take the parental contribution based on the parental's income and assets and divide that number by the number of students in college for that year. So if the parental contribution was $40,000 and there was one student in college, that student would get all $40,000. The, if there were two, each student would have $20,000 of the parental contribution. And that part is going away in the 24-25 school year. They're making some other adjustments to things like the income protection allowance and things like that. But for students or parents who have uh, plan to have more than one child in college at the same time from the 24-25 school year and on, it's going to be a big difference. And What I'm concerned about are the students who are currently in college at that time, who maybe for the first freshman year and or sophomore year, they got a good financial aid package because they had multiple kids in college at the same time. And then let's say their junior year is 24, 25. And now their financial aid package is going to be very, very different because the, the um, formula changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So they need to be ready for that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So what, what should families know about financial aid award letters then? Ah, okay. So these run the gamut. Um, Different schools have different uh, award letters. They vary 
just huge. It's a big variety of what a school can call their award letter. Um, what it should contain is the total cost of attendance for that school for the year. It should include the student's expected family contribution, and it should show what the student's demonstrated financial need is. Not all of them do that, but then it's going to list the, the financial aid that the student is eligible to receive at that particular school. Um, some schools, uh, they, they, they're trying to put a mixture of uh, self-help aid, which is loans, work study, um, and some kind of gift aid, which can be need-based grants or merit-based scholarships. Um, and they have those have different names and sometimes families get confused is this a loan is this thing on that i'm looking at a loan is this free money what is this mm -hmm. and uh, so you know they need to be very careful if uh, i've seen families get oh they just look at the bottom line oh the school costs $45,000 and i got $45,000 worth of aid yay well yeah but 38,000 of that might be a federal parent plus loan that you mm -hmm. might not want to borrow right so you need to be don't just look at the bottom line, look at all of the components and make sure you understand each one of them before you make a decision as to whether you're going to accept that award or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Pour over the letter, get help understanding it if you need to. I mean, they can even call the financial aid office for an explanation, right? Absolutely. If it says there's something here on my award letter that I don't understand, what is this? Uh, and a common one is federal work study. What is that? Is that free money I'm getting? Um, and the school would say, no, that's, you know, that means you can work that much and earn that much on the federal work study program this year. It means you have to, you work to earn it. Um, so absolutely reach out to your school if you have any questions mm -hmm. about uh, what's on the federal or the financial aid award. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So what is kind of the basic uh, student eligibility for a federal direct loan? Um, oh gosh. So on the FAFSA, it collects much of the eligibility requirements, but essentially what it is, is um, if you're a full-time or a student uh, enrolled in a, a regular student uh, enrolled in a degree-seeking program at an eligible institution, um, some of the eligibility is changing with the 24-25 school. Actually, it's already currently changed. It used to be um, any male who was required to be registered with Selective Service uh, had to be or they couldn't get aid no longer a requirement. Um, the the drug uh, eligibility is no longer a, uh, you know, a requirement. Um, but essentially, the student has to be enrolled uh, at least on a half-time basis for federal direct loans. Um, they can be enrolled on less than a half-time basis if they're eligible for the federal Pell Grant. But for the school's own institutional need-based aid, they really get to determine that eligibility on, on their own. Um, mm -hmm. Meaning the schools determine the eligibility. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The school, that's part of their packaging policy. Mm -hmm. And that's why it varies so much because it can vary from school to school. Absolutely. Yeah. You might have, you might be applying to two schools that each cost $70,000 and at, you know, and let's say your demonstrated financial need is $60,000. You might get $60,000 worth of need-based aid at this school that only includes a very small amount of loans. Um, and you might get $60,000 worth of aid at this school, but it includes a $50,000 federal mm -hmm. parent plus loan that you might not want to borrow. So mm -hmm. be very, very careful when mm -hmm. you're looking at these. Yeah, I actually, I, I'd like to highlight this as often as possible because I, I think people aren't aware of it. Like I went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and our aid packages to a low-income student was actually better we, in, in terms of lower loans. They would graduate, a low-income student would graduate with lower loan indebtedness from Reed than they would from Oregon State. So wow. even though Oregon State was, and you know, we weren't like the Ivies were not wealthy enough to have no loans at all. Um, but just because a school is more expensive doesn't mean that they're not gonna give you really good aid. Some of the most expensive schools are also some of the wealthiest schools. Yeah. So just since we're talking about how much it can vary, I just really wanna emphasize that. Don't cross a school off the list if you're high need because it's expensive, you might end up actually paying less. Yes. And there's one way that you can easily check that if you'd like. Um, there's a website called College Navigator. It's a Department of Ed Education mm -hmm. 
website. And you can look up any school in the U.S. and it will give you just, just data that the school is required to give to the department. And one of those is how much of last year's freshman incoming class did the school give, you know, what percentage of that class did they give some free money to from their own, you know, from the school's own pocket? And what was the average amount of that award? That's going to tell you how much, uh, you know, need-based or how much gift aid that school is giving. And then you can also look at the school's um, average net price and their average net price by different income levels to really see, oh, wow. So maybe the school does have a cost of attendance or a sticker price of $80,000, but their average net price might be $32,000 because they give a lot their own institutional aid. So be very careful about that. Don't like, like Sally said, don't cross something off the list just because their sticker price is mm -hmm. what you think is out of, out of your reach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, you know, I applied to state schools. My mom was really smart about it. She said, you are applying to the in-state institutions, but you can apply to these private schools and we'll see if it works out. And luckily for me, it did. So I did, I did the same thing with my daughter. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you can apply wherever you want. I'm going to make you apply to a couple of the state schools. And, you know, if the money comes in, great. But if not, I have veto power. Now, that's, that's how exactly. we did it in my house. Not nice. saying everybody has to do that. No, I think it's a pretty good way, actually. So, all right. So we just have a couple of minutes left. So anything that you want to wrap up with? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, on your award letters, just know that whatever shows up there, um, that doesn't mean that's what you have to get. If, it, mm -hmm. if you have a $40,000 plus loan on one school's um, uh, award letter, that doesn't mean you're required to borrow a $40,000 plus loan. You can decline anything on the award notification, including loans, um, or you can reduce the amount. You might say, well, maybe we just want to borrow a $10,000 federal Parent Plus loan. Now, some schools put Federal Parent Plus loans on the award letters. Some schools do not. But regardless, uh, you parents can apply for Federal Parent Plus loans at any of the schools that the student is applying to. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. All right. So um, thanks so much also to Chris Lucier and Megan Steubendeck. Um, be sure to listen next week when Beth Heaton will be talking with one of our colleagues about being the first generation to attend college in her family. She'll also be having discussions about college visits and more, of course, about the financial aid process, always important. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. You can download every show for free on iTunes. And if you want to search for a particular show topic, you can go to our blog page at blog.getintocollege.com. That's blog.getintocollege.com. We have some pretty great shows in our archives, including last week's segment when we interviewed a businessman who in college was a music major. So Me too. <laughs> yeah, guess what? You don't have to go major in business to go into business and to be successful. Um, so, um, and don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.